This is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey, and with me is Chad Pfeiffer and guest host Kenneth Height. This week we're doing part two of The Rats in the Walls. HPPodcraft.com. Well, so they arrive at the house, the experts, and they pass the night uneventfully. No rats, no tapestries. Uh, one of the experts, uh, the psychic researcher you mentioned, right. says, Well, Thornton. the rats aren't making noise because he's already been shewn the thing he was meant to be shewn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the next day, they. Um, they go down to the subcellar. Uh, seven guys now. Yeah. And a cat. And a cat. Uh, typical investigating force. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the men, Sir William Brinton, manages to get the altar to tilt backward uh-huh. within an the, hour. There's like some unknown counterweight thing. Like it's a yeah. device that actually tilts up. Yeah. Right. It's a good thing it's like that because Lovecraft didn't mention any muscular men. No, he didn't. Yeah. No, <laughs> These are all intellectuals here. There now lay revealed such a horror as would have overwhelmed us had we not been prepared. Through a nearly square opening in the tiled floor, sprawling on a flight of stone steps so prodigiously worn that it was little more than an inclined plane at the center, was a ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Those which retained their collocation as skeletons showed attitudes of panic fear and overall with the marks of rodent gnawing. The skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy, cretinism, or primitive semi-apedom. Above the hellishly littered steps arched a descending passage seemingly chiseled from the solid rock and conducting a current of air. This current was not a sudden and noxious rush as from a closed vault, but a cool breeze with something of freshness in it. We did not pause long, but shiveringly began to clear a passage down the steps. It was then that Sir William, examining the hewn walls, made the odd observation that the passage, according to the direction of the strokes, must have been chiseled from beneath. Much more horrific than in the Dutch language. <laughs> in the Dutch language. <laughs> it is pretty scary, though. That is pretty creepy, yeah. Absolutely. I, that is definitely worth the italics it's printed in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, they descend deeper into this uh, into this place, and light, it's actually, there's light coming from down below, yeah. and the light is from... Uh, fissures in the cliffside because right. now they've descended so far that they're actually to the limestone cliffs and there were cracks but you know from the outside you couldn't really make out that they led to anywhere yeah. but in here you know it's kind of illumin- giving a creepy illumination at this place I like that he uh, the protagonist says I must be very deliberate now and choose my words that yeah. little sentence set apart he's freaking out <laughs> and he's saying I gotta choose my words like this has scared the frosting out of Lovecraft. He's going to tell you exactly what's going on now. <laughs> He's freaked out. Um, and of course, as you say, they, they keep descending, and um, this is what they see. It was a twilight grotto of enormous height, stretching away farther than any eye could see. A subterraneous world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestion. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance, I saw a weird pattern of tumuli, a savage circle of monoliths, a low-domed Roman ruin, a sprawling Saxon pile, and an early English edifice of wood. But all these were dwarfed by the ghoulish spectacle presented by the general surface of the ground. For yards about, the steps extended an insane tangle of human bones, or bones at least as human as those on the steps. 
Like a foamy sea they stretched, some fallen apart, but others wholly or partly articulated as skeletons. These latter, invariably in postures of demoniac frenzy, either fighting off some menace or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. This is a pretty uh, insane picture he's painting here. Yeah. Like, it's this uh, this huge underground cavern that has, like, it has buildings in it. And they're buildings from all these different historical periods, you know, that kind of correspond with the legends that we've heard before. And there's just bones everywhere. That's that's crazy. Yeah, if I were um, an artist, I, I would be painting this every day. I mean, there's so much detail. It's amazing. Like a foamy sea they stretched. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and when the anthropologist looks at the skulls, he gets confused because just like, um, you know, there being all these time periods of houses, there's some that are highly developed, Mm -hmm. but some that almost look Neanderthal. Yeah. You know. Well, he he, mentions the Piltdown Man. Yeah, he mentions the Piltdown Man again. Because uh, the Piltdown Man wasn't shown as a hoax until after Lovecraft died, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the bones are all gnawed by rats. Some of the skeletons have even... This causes one of the guys to faint. (laughs) But some of the skeletons have even devolved to a point where they're quadrupeds. In fact, they they deduce, after they've examined this long enough, uh, that these quadruped things were held in stone pens and and they were overfed to a a fatness by those vats of coarse vegetables. Right, uh uh-huh. Probably corn. Yeah. Very typical. Um, (laughs) One of the guys is actually translating as they're going through here, and he's translating some of the diet facts, you know, some of the... um, some of the things that were going on down here, some of the gastronomic details, which people right. are not happy about. And Norris goes into the, the English building and, and he comes out telling them that it, it's a butcher shop and a kitchen in there. Yeah. And uh, with some pretty recent tools inside, which is what freaks him out. Yeah. He says there's, and there's some graffiti from as recent as, as 1610. What, what's going on? It looks like that the people in this weird little town that's hidden underneath the Priory is like cannibal Jersey, you know, like yeah. it's, it's where people <laughs> <Cannibal> just, <laughs> people just go down there and they, you know, there's, there's a butcher shop set up. You can go down and buy some, some human or semi-human flesh and, yeah. and eat it. And maybe there, I don't know what was going on. maybe there's a, maybe one of those buildings was a cafe and they would, <laughs> you know, well, it doesn't say that there's a cafe, but they do seem to be repurposing some of the buildings. I mean, they've got, um, uh, he says later that they used the Saxon pile as a cell, mm-hmm. uh, as a prison, to, to imprison people that they that they want to eat, which I guess are special people because one of them has the Delapore arms on a finger ring. Oh right, right? yes, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. So I, I, you know, they are repurposing these these buildings that have been around for you know possibly ten thousand years. He speculates. Uh-huh. So you know, who can say? Yes, perhaps a cafe. Certainly, you know. Um, they're they're using some of it to worship Kybele and uh, Addis, uh-huh. like they said previously. And you need and, caffeine for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you could do that in a cafe. Well, I, I just I'm, I was thinking of some cannibal beat poets and stuff. You know what I mean? That would come up in and... exactly. <laughs> I love uh, this uh, sentence or these couple of sentences. Through all this horror, my cat stalked unperturbed. Once I saw him monstrously perched atop a mountain of bones and wondered at the secrets that might lie behind his yellow eyes. So while all of his companions are fainting, this cat with the terrible name is a total badass. He's, just, you know, he's, he's striking picturesque kind of stances on top of the bones. You know, it's to like, him, yeah, this right. is awesome. Unperturbed. Yeah. So they look down into these giant pits that are full of bones, and, and Delapore realizes that, well, this is where the rats scrambled from mm-hmm. in that horrible, you know, when the rats overran the land and, and ate all the, the sheep and the hogs and the people. Right. 
uh, they poured out of these pits and into the countryside because the pits weren't getting filled up anymore. Right. With bodies. Right. Then there came a sound from that inky, boundless, farther distance that I thought I knew. And I saw my old black cat dart past me like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown. But I was not far behind, for there was no doubt after another second. It was the eldritch scurrying of those fiend-born rats, always questing for new horrors, and determined to lead me on even unto those green caverns of Earth's center, when Yarlahotep, the mad, faceless god, howls blindly to the piping of two amorphous, idiot flute players. This reference surprised me. It's like uh, Lovecraft must have known that we were going to have Kenneth on the show again. Yeah, somehow I knew. <laughs> somehow we knew. But it's funny because he uh, mentions the the blind flute players, which is generally associated with Azathoth and not uh, Nyarlathotep. Yeah. I think Lovecraft is still probably just working out his mythos, maybe? Since this is the first um, mention of Nyarlathotep after the the story Nyarlathotep, in which he's the, the, the showman, the electrical showman, right. and now we've presented him as, as an idiot god, um, I think I think Lovecraft is basically sort of figuring out his his, sim, his symbolic cosmology, and he knows that there is a that the, the center of everything is, is a blind idiot, right? He knows that, and that's true whether it's Nyarlathotep or it's Azathoth, mm-hmm. and in this uh, version, you know that it's at the center of the Earth, mm-hmm. not the center right. of the universe. Right, right. So this is kind of before his Copernican revolution, and right. he's still burrowing down into the underworld like he was in the nameless city and like he was in the festival and like he in, in a lot of these early stories especially there's these um uh sort of secondary world that's that's got its own light source and it's got buildings in it and often it's full of devolved people mm-hmm. and he he's got some implication that further down there are more horrible mysteries yet he talks about the stygian pit that no one ever looked into right and right, right. he and he talks about uh, later on in the mound he talks about how there's or uh, gulfs even beneath uh, Kenyan that uh, you know Yoth and and, um, and and sand and things like that, and the whole dream quest takes place in kind of this underworld slash uh, dream world, mm-hmm. and it, so this is a this is something that I think Lovecraft is trying to work out is is the center of everything uh, is the center of of madness is it the middle of the earth or is it the middle of the cosmos? He has right really started looking up at the stars yet in this uh, yeah. at, at this point although yeah. he does to an extent with uh, Wall Sleep and Polaris obviously there's some stars right stuff sure there. he yeah. doesn't go too far he's still looking from the earth up into the, into the stars right. yeah, and yeah, the yeah. stars right. though yeah then Delapore you know runs off despite losing light you know he yeah. runs off into these depths and these dark uh, uh, pits and uh, well not into the pits but off into the darkness yeah. and um Away from everybody else. The text kind of here devolves with the character's mind. Yeah, it, gets, it starts getting pretty crazy, and, and uh, he starts not really making a lot of sense. Something bumped into me. Something soft and plump. It must have been the rats. The vicious, gelatinous, ravenous army that feast on the dead and the living. Why shouldn't rats eat a de la Poor as a de la Poor eats forbidden things? The war ate my boy, damn them all. And the Yanks ate Carfax with flames and burnt Grandsire Delapore in the secret. No. No, I tell you, I am not that demon swineherd in the Twilight Grotto. It was not Edward Norris's fat face on that flabby fungus thing. Who says I am a Delapore? He lived. 
but my boy died. Shall a Norris hold the lands of a De La Poor? It's voodoo, I tell you. That spotted snake. Curse you, Thornton. I'll teach you the fate of what my family do. Splud, thou stinkard. I'll learn ye how to ghost. Won't ye swank me till twice? Magna Mater. Magna Mater. Atis, dia adaid adaidin. Agus pas dunachart. Donas is dolas art. Agus leitza. That is what they say I said when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris, with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up Exum Priory and shut me into this barred room at Hanwell with fearful whispers about my heredity and experiences. When I speak of poor Norris, they accuse me of a hideous thing. But they must know that I did not do it. They must know it was the rats. The slithering, scurrying rats whose scampering will never let me sleep. The demon rats that race behind the padding in this room and beckon me down to greater horrors than I have ever known. The rats they can never hear. The rats... The rats in the walls. And that is the end. That is the end. You know what's I really what I think is really cool about that is it he kind of rolls in his you know his lost son. Like yeah, that that comes into it, and and the fact that you know um, Norris lived and he died, and there's it really makes, personalizes it. Yeah, and it sort of yeah. makes it um, maybe he's not just totally crazy. I mean, obviously he is crazy, but yeah. there is some resentment that he had. Yeah, and is kind of showing through, and maybe that's why Norris got the chomp instead of any of the other guys. Well, yeah, but I mean, also there's an implication that Norris is related to the flabby fungus white things that they were feasting on. Oh, right. Right. Oh, yeah. right. Am right, I wrong right. about that? Yeah, no, no. Well, because Norris would, would have been from the families around the area where the Delapores yeah. would have been, you know, harvesting their right. uh, cannibals. Their, yeah. Not their cannibals, but their um, flocks, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, it was good yeah. enough. <laughs> My family liked eating this. I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also there's the whole, I mean, when you say that, that Norris lived and his son died, there's the whole thing where the Norris's get to flourish on the Delapores land, right? right? That the Delapores have been cut off, uh, again, you know, literally without issue. They they don't have anything left in Britain after the, the 11th Earl flees to Virginia, and then when um, our narrator comes back, his son is already dead, so there aren't going to be any more Delapores, but yeah. we can assume that there's, you know, whole tons of Norrises all over the place, all plump and sleek and uh, yeah. self-satisfied. Right. And man, that just really... Lent. It's great that he, you know, you get the the detail about him losing his son, and then it's great that it comes back, and it really justifies his descent into madness so quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really has a lot weighing on his mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of background on this. Uh, of course, I don't believe it. There is. Uh, it was written in August or September of 1923, and was first published in Weird Tales in 24. And that's it. That's it. No, <laughs> that's not it. 
Yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot of background when you put it no, that supposedly, way. Supposedly, uh, the idea for this story came from Lovecraft's uh, commonplace book, and he was just in bed one night, and the wallpaper creaked, like, and came off, and it just kind of freaked him out a little bit. And he wrote down that, you know, this is a, this is gonna, probably a good idea for something. And I think later on he wrote um, another little plot germ in one of his book, which was Horrible Secret Encrypt of Ancient Castle Discovered by Dweller. And, you know. Yeah. So maybe those things have uh, something to do with this story. Maybe not. But also, you know, that um, that, that little bit of uh, Gaelic at the end of the, mm-hmm. the story, you know, when he kind of breaks down into, into that language, he, uh, he lifted that from this uh, Fiona MacLeod's The Sin Eater, which is in, in Gaelic. Right. Which means God against thee and in thy face, and may a death of woe be yours, evil and sorrow to thee and thine. Yeah, so he just lifted it right out of that. Yeah, yeah, but he, but but later on, Lovecraft wrote to Frank uh, Frank Long. The only objection to that phrase is that it's is that it's Gaelic instead of Kimrick, as the south of England's local demands. But with anthropology, details don't count. Nobody will ever stop to note the difference. Is what he said. Did you stop to note the difference? Though? I did stop to note the difference, but only because uh, Lovecraft noted the difference. Right. And more importantly, or at least as importantly, uh, Robert E. Howard noted the difference. Yes, he did. When it was republished in Weird Tales in 1930, Robert E. Howard wrote a uh, snarky uh, letter to the editor, um, uh, like you'd write to you know Marvel uh, Comics explaining why Spider-Man was on the wrong building or whatever. <laughs> And, oh yeah, uh, what was the prize? He said that obviously what's going on is that there's a, a secret Gaelic uh, uh, subculture underneath this Kimrick uh, <laughs> stratum, and that that's what he's referring to. Uh, <laughs> wow. And oh. so uh, then Lovecraft writes back, you know, and uh, they discover that they have, you know, that, that they're best friends, you know, brothers. So that's and when that's when their relationship kind of starts, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because he was much younger uh, than Lovecraft was, Robert E. Howard. He was like ten years younger than he was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, yeah, no, he. I'm for sure he's. Because I remember when we first brought up Howard early on, he was like only 14 years old when Lovecraft uh, wrote one of his earlier stories. So he's definitely much younger. But this was actually the correspondence, or his letter to the editor was what started their correspondence. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I didn't know that. I do that. Uh, Robert E. Howard had the that he was the one that, that he chimed in on that, yeah. but. <laughs> Um, what, no, for Marvel Comics, what do you get when you point out inconsistencies? Is it a no prize? You get a no prize. Yeah, no, no prize. prize yeah. There was some good. Uh, I, this is a tangent, and then we'll probably cut it. But <laughs> 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 there is, uh, there was this great no prize um, issue they used to do. Like mm-hmm. every year, they would like com- com- compile all of like the mistakes mm-hmm. they would make, and they would. It was just. I remember one of them. The thing was was you know going to fight some bad villain, and he said. Only one of us is going to be walking out of here, and it ain't going to be me. <laughs> and, like, and that was, you know, somebody caught it and wrote in, and right. then they put it in there. And there was another one where there was this guy who was a pirate, and he had a patch over one eye. Uh-huh. And he was looking at his periscope in one panel. and the next panel, he's looking away but still holding the periscope. And then you could see that his patched eye was over the periscope thing that he was looking through. There was – oh, I loved those so much when I was a kid. I mean, those – they did it every year. They would publish like yeah. just a compilation of all of their blunders, kind of a blooper reel for comic right. books. And so stuff. The gag reel of comics. So, Ken, you also uh, you did a little uh, uh, research on this one recently. Yes, because I knew I would be uh, summoned up to, to be guesting on it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the summoning worked. That's right. So I um, uh, I went back and uh, reread the uh, 
the, the Stephen Maraconda essay, uh, Baring Gould and the Ghouls, which talks about uh, uh, Sabine Baring Gould's uh, Curious Myths of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. which is uh, a book that we know that Lovecraft owned and read, mm-hmm. and um, which details, as you might expect, a number of curious myths of the Middle Ages. Mm. But uh, two of the of the ones that Maraconda thinks are specifically associated with this is one called uh, St. Patrick's Purgatory, mm-hmm. which is about a mysterious uh, monastery or abbey that is somewhere in Ireland that has a cavern underneath it that leads down into Purgatory. And if you go down into the um, uh, into the vaults underneath that monastery, you hear the torments of the damned. Mm-hmm. And you uh, get to see all the uh, horrible things that are happening to uh, the, the people in Purgatory. Now, there was a bunch of rats involved in that story too, wasn't there? Um, in that in in that one, there isn't. No, there is. But there is another one of the curious myths called uh, the story of Bishop Hatto. Right. And Bishop Hatto um, uh, is a very bad bishop who gets so steamed that the poor are um, uh, getting on his case to be fed during a famine right. that he invites them all into his barn and burns them alive. Right. And having done that, he then goes back home, you know, brushing his hands off, you know, because right. he's well himself. done, and uh, sits down, and um, uh, when he wakes up, he's awakened, in fact, by his cat in the story. And um, uh, when he looks and sees what's got his cat um, uh, so upset, his whole bedroom is full of rats. Yeah. And they, and, and they devour him, right? And then they devour him. Yeah. Yes, indeed they do. They, That's what you um, get. Uh, <laughs> they, um, uh, what's, what's the thing? Um, they whetted their teeth against the stones, and now they picked the bishop's bones. They gnawed the flesh from every limb, for they were sent to do judgment on him. Oh. Yeah, yeah so that's... It, that's it's pretty, I mean, uh, pretty intense. It's pretty, definitely intense, and I can see where Lovecraft got a little inspiration from that, but yeah. I think... Uh, the Rats of the Walls is, is a different type of story because yeah. the protagonist is kind of the monster again. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of a, a turnaround where it's not, it, it's not, um, he really didn't do anything wrong. No, all, all he did was commit the, the, the standard Lovecraftian sin of um, uh, uh, researching your family history. Right. <laughs> right. Be, being descended from <laughs> if people. If there's that one thing bad. I've learned from Lovecraft is don't study. <laughs> don't study. That's right. Don't, don't do any archaeology, don't no. do any history. Nothing like that. <laughs> don't don't do that. Well, yeah. also, there's no rats in the story. You know, I mean that that you hear them. Oh right, yeah. And when he even you know physically describes them, and he's in the dark. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's feeling them, maybe right. not. And there's uh, the the bones have rat gnaw yeah. marks. So there's on lots them. of evidence of rats. But yeah, no, but there's no, no actual rats. rats. Yeah. Right. And then did you did you say you were you checked out some of Irvin Cobb's story? I looked at it a long time ago when um I when I wrote in. When I wrote George Lovecraft, I didn't do it recently for this. It, it's not a very good story, I don't think. <laughs> um, and it's certainly, you know, the payoff. Uh, there, there's a Sherlock Holmes story called The Yellow Face in which um, the big surprise is that someone has a, has a black member of their family. And it's like, oh, God, Conan Doyle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. And this is the same sort of thing where the guy, you know, uh, dies in a, in, a, in a train accident. I think it is, or he's hit by a truck. And um, he shouts out something, and it turns out, big surprise, that he had, you know, African blood. Dun, dun, dun. Right. And that's why he shouted an African um, uh, oh, right. uh, yeah, but it was... uh, utterance, when he, which is the same utterance that his African ancestor had uttered when he was, you know, hit by a rhino. After us or something. Yeah, he was charged over by a yeah, rhino, rhino yeah. over him. And, you know, again, when you look, when you look at, at that basic, at, at that story, and you compare it 
you know, rats on the walls is is you know practically you know ACLU material compared to that. Kind oh of right, thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh dear. That's funny. Well, we're all descended yeah. from Africans. We're all descended exactly. from Africans. Yeah, we're so that's a, that's a problem. That's right. And uh, if, as long as they're not uh, fiendish white apes from the Congo. Yeah. Yeah, we're okay. Yeah. We're all good. Watch out for those guys. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, the wheeze. And when I read it at the um. Uh, Again, when I was rereading everything for toward Lovecraft, and I and I read it, it it suddenly came in on me so strongly that this is very much Lovecraft's response to Fall of the House of Usher in the same way that um, uh, his Dunwichor is a response to Great God Pan by Machen, and that Sarnath is a response to Dunsany. That he's taking that Poe model uh-huh. of a house and uh, and uh, and the uh, the, the collapse simultaneously of the physical house and of the lineage that lives there and all of the parallels the parallels of the, of the fact that it's an auditory um, uh, a phantasm that, that it's something you hear and it's something that only the member of the house can really hear and everyone else is just reacting to him there's there's so many Poe parallels and so much um, I mean reading both this and Usher together I think you get a lot more out of out of rats in the walls than you do if you treat it as its own thing, and not not that it's not worthy of being treated as its own thing, but it's so clearly um, Lovecraft's great final, you know, thanks for all the fish to Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, that sounds like a great uh, great goth weekend. Read, read, <laughs> read Usher, read Rats yeah. in the Walls, mm-hmm. yeah. listen to your Sisters of Mercy uh, yeah, exactly. CDs. And, uh... That's right. <laughs> Hanging out down there with all your nauseous musical instruments, like in my hand. Yeah, smoke right. some cloves. Nauseous, exactly. <laughs> Pipe in the the smell of the graveyard. Around. The smell exactly. of the graveyard, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Ken, uh, I want to say thank you again. Your your input is always amazing, and it makes uh, makes me wonder how how off we are normally <laughs> on our podcast. It makes me wonder how we gotten this far. We yeah. Half glimpsed uh, truths about Lovecraft. <laughs> Um, we love having you on the show and hopefully you'll be back again I I would love to come back again I always love doing your your podcast and I think it's great fun and if you're worried I almost never uh, listen to the podcast and think oh no they've got it all wrong oh good (laughs) we try to stray we try to stay away from facts that's That's right (laughs) Uh, I also want to say thanks again to Andrew Lehman oh Andrew always a pleasure doing a great job for dealing with some very difficult passages of text yeah Uh, (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for getting through all of that. And uh, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Kat Height. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>